0: 4 this morning. Excited about this. as we begin a new section of Revelation. Last week we looked at Matthew chapter 24 and really to lay the foundation as we go on from here into Revelation. um, To get a sense of the timing that takes place and uh, it's important that we understand the times leading up to the tribulation that are described there in Matthew 24 the specific times that he refers to or points to that take place in the tribulation and, um, and the rapture of the church. And so that was the point really to, of looking at Matthew 24 last week. We didn't re- go through the whole chapter, but most of it. And one of the descriptions he gives there that Jesus gives in Matthew 24 is that the end times of the last days will be like the days of Noah, which has two meanings to it. Uh, one is that in the days of Noah, there was great... Uh, selfishness and great violence. Uh, we're told there in Genesis that the thoughts and intents of, the, of man's heart was evil all the time. But the other thing that Jesus points out about that is that it, they were eating and drinking and giving in marriage. It was a day like any other day, which tells us that the timing is is leading up to, it is a That day that he takes the church away is at an hour and a day nobody knows. It's a day like any other day. And once the tribulation begins, there will never be a normal day again. And so uh, he also talked about uh, earthquakes and pestilence and disease and false teachers and all these things. And like we talked about last week, these things have always existed. But as we get closer to the end, as those last days draw near, in fact, I believe we are right there today, uh, that uh, they grow with greater frequency and intensity. So there's not only more false teaching going on, but there's a greater intensity to it. Never in the history of the world have you been able to access so many false teachers through the click of a button. Anywhere in the internet, whatever crazy idea you want, you can find it. In fact, you can find whole chat groups and and websites that (laughs) love that crazy idea. And it's never happened before. I think it's one of the things that points to the day and the hour that we live in. Um... Now, like I said, we're starting a new section today, a new part of Revelation. If you remember, John was told in chapter 1, write the things that you have seen. And so that's the event there in chapter 1 where he gets that clear vision of the Lord. He gets this amazing picture of Jesus in His glory and His power, and that's used uh, through the next couple chapters as he writes to the churches, But that was the things which John had seen. The next section was, write the things which are, which are the seven churches, chapters two and three. The church that existed then in that day, but as we've talked about, those seven churches represent all the churches throughout the entire church age, and the people within the church, right? Church isn't a building, church is the body, and so it's the group of believers as a whole, but it also applies to each one of us individually individually as we, we look at those seven churches, But now we come to the third section. Write the things which must take place after this. After what? After the church age. And that's important. It's a very subtle thing that's given to us. And we're going to see this great picture here at the beginning of chapter 4. But uh, it's it's very interesting because chapter 2 and 3 represent the whole church age and chapter 4 is something after. The things that must take place after this. After the church age has ended, after we're gone in heaven with the Lord, raptured away, taken away by Him, leaving the rest of the world to face the great tribulation, the worst seven years in the history of the world. It's also called the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So, the things which must take place after this, chapter four is where we are today. So, let's pray. Lord God, again, we are so blessed to be able to study Your Word, to gather together as a family, to tune our ears into what You want to say to us. And we pray that You would do just that, Holy Spirit, that You would apply Your Word to our lives, that You'd show us how it applies to the church, but You'd show us how it applies to each one of our lives individually, that we might walk it out, that You would bring it to our remembrance throughout this week, that we would be changed by Your Word today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So chapter 4 is kind of short, just 11 verses. So verse 1, chapter 4 says this, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you the things which must take place after this. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven. And one sat on the throne, and he who sat there was like jasper and a sardis stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. We're given this great picture, and again, it's subtle, it'd be really easy to just fly right over the top, but... It's not just telling us what happens to John, but I believe it's also showing us what will take place with the whole church. Uh, it's mentioned a couple times, and it's interesting because uh, I've heard a couple times this week, you know, it pops up on Facebook, and people that I'm not really connected to, they're just on the church page or whatever, and, and I don't know if they listen to the Bible study, but a couple different people went, you know, the rapture's not even mentioned in the New Testament. The, rapture, the rapture's not mentioned in the Bible. And, and the, the truth of the matter is, the word rapture isn't. The word rapture is something that we've actually kind of gotten from the Greek, and, but the idea of what the rapture is is mentioned many times. And Paul himself mentions it a couple of times, one of them being in First Thessalonians chapter 4. I'm just going to read this to you. It says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus, we shall always be with the Lord. This is the event that happens after these things. After the church age, man, the the Lord is coming for the church. And again, we talked a lot about that last week, uh, before the tribulation began. And this picture that John, again, look at where he's at. He's gone from chapter 3, the end of the church age, but before the tribulation begins, he's caught up. He's taken away from the events that he will view, but he will view them from heaven, safe and sound. And so it will be with the church. The voice of Jesus, like a trumpet, is even how he describes it here. Um, Revelation gives us a couple different views, and this is going to be important because As we go through Revelation, there's a jumping back and forth between two views. One is the events taking place in heaven and the events taking place on earth. And so what we're going to see, chapter 4 through most of chapter 6, is all taking place in heaven. And really, nothing is immediately affecting earth yet. Chapters 4 through, again, most of 6, these things are happening. And while they will affect earth, they don't immediately affect earth when they take place until we get to the end of chapter 6, when that seal is broken, the sixth seal, and instantly an event takes place. Again, we talked about that last week. That's the rapture along with a worldwide earthquake and, and total chaos breaking out on the earth. From earth's point of view, that's when the tribulation begins. That's the starting point. John does his best to bring these things across to us. And I can't imagine, can you imagine how hard it would be for John to see heaven and God's throne room and try and then use the human language, any part of all of the human language, to describe what he has seen. I think it's interesting, Paul, for all of his education and all of his great oration, his ability to teach and and all these things, when he talked about when he was taken to heaven, he describes it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And he says that the things that he saw there were unlawful to speak. The idea is that it would be a crime for me to even try and convey what I saw, that it would fall so short. Would pale so much, and so here's John going, trying to bring this idea across. Not just of, not all of heaven, the throne room of God, intense. And again, I, I, I can't imagine how hard it was. But I find it interesting. I've had people that really dismiss the whole book of Revelation with this idea of, well, there was no way for John to explain really what he saw, so we can't understand it it was like a child trying to describe something so complex that it really makes no sense at all. Oh well, that's ridiculous, right? That while we don't get every detail as much as we want to understand it, we get enough to understand it. We get enough to understand the important parts. And so while we try and picture it. You know, and I found myself this week, you know, going through this and thinking, man, what what is it that John saw, you know? And and what would that have looked like? And the description isn't all that important. It's interesting and it's powerful. But I think uh, it is important for us to, to look at the things that we do understand and because we understand them, they are the most important. This is what God wants to convey to us, right? And it's easy to get caught up and you know, we're gonna get a description of the seraphim or the cherubim and, and it's like really crazy and other things that will go on as we go into Revelation even more, just crazy descriptions of things. We can't get distracted by those. It's good to take them in, you know, tuck them away. But what is it that God wants us to know? And I think that's especially important here in chapter 4. Because I'll tell you what, this one, it has just been ringing in my ears. Ever since I started studying this again and looking at this again, because uh, there's an order to what the Lord is showing John. Right? He could have taken him to the, the pearly gates or whatever and walked him down the street and, and walked him through heaven and all the way eventually getting to the temple. He takes him right to the throne room of God because he wants him to see one thing. And it's not the things that we usually think of. I mean, when we think about heaven, it's that kind of stuff, right? The, the, the pearly gates. And those, there is a description of the gates at the end of Revelation in the new heaven and the new earth. We talk about the streets of gold. We talk about mansions and crowns and all these other things. But none of those things are what the Lord shows to John, first of all. And I think the Lord puts him in this place because he knows that John's going to be drawn to one thing, right? It's not the angels to start with. It's not even the peace or the beauty of heaven. He doesn't, disc- doesn't mention those things specifically, well, while all that was amazing, what God really wants John and, I believe, us to see is that above everything else, there is a throne in heaven. Above everything else, there's a throne in heaven. And I think we have trouble grasping all that that means because of our culture, right? In our culture, we get a vote for everything. We get an opinion on everything. But in a, in a culture that's run by a king, the throne is the final place of authority. Every decision that is made there, every law or rule that's made there is final. There's no more discussion. There's not a recount when you don't like it. There's none of those things. When a word comes from the throne, it's done. And he describes this throne that is over every king, every ruler, every nation on earth. This throne that is over every physical and spiritual power, over everything angelic or demonic, over time, space, and all creation stands this throne. This throne is set above all. And upon the throne is our God. I think this is something we know to some degree in our heads, right? And even when things go bad, even when times get difficult, people say, well, God's on the throne. And I think we mean it when we say that. But I know for me that there is a disconnect. I know that truth in my head. Yes, God is on the throne, but inside I'm freaking out. Losing my mind, sleeping very little. You know, I'm up late, I'm worrying, I'm stressing if we can really get a hold of this idea, if we can really embrace it not just in our heads, but let it get down into our hearts and our souls to say above everything else, there is a throne set in heaven." It will change our lives. It will change the way we deal with stress and difficulty and hard relationships and bad choices and, and things we regret because I think most often now when the storm hits, while in our heads we can say, yeah, there's a throne set in heaven. The storm that we're in is something tangible that we can touch. And I cannot touch his throne yet. To some degree, this is a huge step of faith because we're taking John's word for it. We're taking God's word for it. But again, if we embrace it and believe it, it will change everything. I relate a lot with Peter, and I love Peter. <laughs> that guy, I get Peter probably more than anybody else because Peter's the guy that sees Jesus walking out on the water, and is the only one to say, "Lord, bid me to come to you." Right? And I picture all the eleven going, "Man, why didn't I think of that?" You know, the, Peter's got the like, "Lord, if that's you, just call me, and I'm going to walk on the water," and and the Lord says, "Yeah, come on." And he steps out of the boat. And again, we think that's the moment of faith. Dude, I stepped out of the boat. I I put my feet on the water. I've passed. But after a couple steps, he looks at the storm. And that's what we do, right? We go, Lord, you're in control. You're on the throne. Everything's under your power. You have full authority. I'm going to step out of this boat and trust you. And then we're like, whoa, that storm's bigger than I thought. This difficulty, this is way bigger than what I expected. And we set our eyes upon the wind and on the waves and we sink, right? I think I relate with Peter also in the prayer life, right? That very long, drawn out, dramatic prayer of, Lord, help. That's, that's the one he calls out and the Lord answers, right? And, and it's honest, Lord, help. And it, for us, again, we, we start to sink in the storm. And the Lord is is going to meet us there. He's going to rescue us in that place. But again, I think if we can keep in mind, in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the wind and the waves, there is a throne set in heaven. And it is above every storm. See, again, I think that's important to know. Because it doesn't mean that he is going to rescue us from the storm. Doesn't mean if we call out or if we have enough faith, we'll never enter a storm. That's just not reality. But what it means is that his throne is above every storm. That his authority is above every wind, every wave, everything. His power is lasting and unchanging. And that word set in heaven is important. It is unshakable, immovable. It is set. And then John tries to describe this, and I, and I love it because, again, I picture he's just doing the best he can, right? And then he says, it was like jasper or a sardis stone, and a sardis stone. Is how he's kind of combining two things. But even then, he says it was like. It wasn't exactly that. It wasn't that it was made out of that. It was like. And the idea is that it was a breathtaking, glorious beauty, right, that... Literally, a, a, a jasper, a sardis stone is probably related to, uh, closely to a diamond and a ruby. And the idea is that when you looked upon it, man, it was glimmering. It was beautiful. It was full of all these facets and light and, and gorgeous. And the idea is that John is going, it was breathtakingly beautiful. That's as close as he can come. And then around him is a rainbow. And then he says the rainbow, in appearance, was like an emerald. Again, combining things. He's going, this is the best I can do. It's this rainbow, but at the same time, it's like an emerald. are like, well, that'll sound nothing like each other, right? But again, there's this beauty. And I think there's also the importance of the rainbow, uh, because he doesn't even say it's like a rainbow. He says that there was a rainbow. Well, though it's been hijacked by other people as their own symbol, the rainbow is meant to be the symbol of God's promise. That's that's what it's about. And again, this is a powerful picture. Because not only is God seated upon his throne, in heaven, immovable, unchanging, above all things, he is surrounded by his promises. And they're beautiful. Again, John is just pointing to these things. And... And not only is it important for John to understand, I believe that this, the reason that God takes John to this place, to the throne room, to see this truth, to understand this truth, is because he's about to witness the most horrible seven years the world has ever known. Terrible event after terrible event are going to take place. And he needs to know that God is on the throne through it all. But again, it is important for us to know as well. In fact, more than anything else, we need to, to remember. I think this, I want this to be like that inner voice, kind of my, own, my new catchphrase that whenever I start to get frustrated, whenever I start to get fed up, and I, and I tell you, I think all of us, in, in very much uh, the same way, with this crazy year that we've had. And again, goodbye 2020, you're over. You know? Everybody's like, yes, I lived through 2020. And it's, it's over and we're moving on. But just all the unrest and all the political nonsense and craziness and so many things and so much division in our country. There's a throne set in heaven. And I want that to be what's ringing in my heart and in my ears. Because I'll tell you, I've got some very strong political opinions that I keep to myself for the most part. But I can get very frustrated. You know, listen to the news. It doesn't matter which side you're listening to. You don't believe a thing anymore because it's all just, you know, echo chambers. and, And I can find myself being so aggravated. What I need to remember is that there's a throne set in heaven. And come back to that. Not just with the big things. Not just with the huge hurricane type of storms. But with the little tiny paper cuts that wear you down over the day. Right? To know that he is always faithful, that he has surrounded himself with his promises because he's going to keep them all. Verse 4 goes on. It says, Around the throne were 24 thrones. And on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes. And they, were, they had crowns of gold on their head, And there were thrones, excuse me, and and from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunders, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back around the throne of God are 24 thrones, and upon them 24 elders. Well, who are these guys? Who are the 24 elders? And I'll tell you what, there's a bunch of stuff out there, and people like to come up with ideas and and have all kinds of opinions on it, and argue, and debate, and blah, blah, blah. The fact is, they don't know, and neither do we. We don't know who these guys are, but we know that they are there. We know uh, What we do know is that they are not angels and uh, that they are humans. They are people that have been redeemed. In the next chapter, in chapter 5, they will sing a song admitting that, that they have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And so we know that these are people. Again, I don't think it's important that we know who they are, or he would have told us who they were, right? But they're there, and they're a part of this worship service taking place within the throne room of God. We see that they are clothed in white robes, which uh, is always a picture of the righteousness of Christ. Again, these are people that have been redeemed. And they wear crowns. Uh, But it's interesting, the word crown, and we've seen this before already in the book of Revelation, it's not like a, a royal crown. The idea is the Olympic crown or the crown of victory. And so these guys have had victory over their sin by the blood of Jesus Christ, and, and that's important, right? It's not by their works, not by their sacrifice, not because they were great people, um, but they've, been, they've received their victory. Um, I think one of the other things that I love here is that I tend to picture, maybe you guys do too, maybe it's just me, I don't know. When I picture heaven, and I picture even the throne room of God, I picture being in this very quiet place where nobody speaks over a whisper. Right? And there's this lovely little harp music that plays in the background, and everybody's kind of tiptoes everywhere because it's so peaceful, right? That is not what's described here. <laughs> that from the throne there is lightning and thunder and voices and all this stuff going on. It's loud, it's not chaotic, but it's loud, it's powerful. There's authority here, right? This isn't a place like a library that you're going to get shushed if you speak out loud. Man, there is, there's volume taking place with these things. Um, verse 5, that from the throne of God proceeded lightnings, thunder, and voices. Again, I don't, I don't fully, I don't even partially understand what that looks like or sounds like. But what it makes me think of is Mount Sinai. Remember when the Lord had delivered... The children of Israel, the people of Israel, and he he takes them to Mount Sinai. And there on the top of the mountain, there's this cloud that descends and that the Lord is there. And there is lightning and there's thunder and there is the Lord speaking his word to them. And it's so intense that the people of Israel go, we don't want to hear it, Moses. You go talk to him. We don't want it. We can't take it anymore. If he keeps doing it, we're all going to die. Right? It's just so intense. That's as much as mankind could have taken. This is more. This is something that in our mortal bodies, we could not even be around. Right, And again, the intensity of it I think is important because it sets the stage of, of, of what the throne room of God is like. And I believe it is beautiful and it is terrifying. And I think we also see, well, we do see this huge connection. Now, so much of Revelation points back to the Old Testament. And I tell you what, if we stopped and looked at every single point, I don't know if we'd ever get through because there's just so many references. But I'm going to touch on a few here because I think it's, again, sets such a cool picture and it shows the continuity of how the Lord does things. And that what he did way back with Israel and with Moses and the building of the temple is, is now being brought to light of the importance of it. So back in Exodus 25, when he is telling Moses to build the tabernacle, and this would be the temple that would travel with them, right? So the, the Levites would take the whole thing down, and they'd be in charge of parts of it, and they put the whole thing back up whenever they stopped. And the Lord's presence would go with them, would hover over the Ark of the Covenant, over the mercy seat. And, and so this was their place of worship, right? But he tells him something. uh, The Lord tells Moses something super important in Exodus 25, verse 9. He says, according to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of the furnishings, just so you shall make it. So what he is telling him is, I'm going to tell you how to make everything, what to make it out of, and where it's going to go. And you need to do it exactly the way I say, because it is a pattern for the things in heaven, that what was given to Moses was a blueprint or a copy as close as they could make it according to God's direction of the throne room of God. That his throne in heaven is pictured by the mercy seat that is over the Ark of the Covenant. It's the lid that went on top. That his throne is a throne of mercy. And he hovered there. He s- sat there upon his throne. right. The seven lamps. Here it says, and we've looked at this before earlier in Revelation, that the seven lamps or the seven fires or flames, it says, are the seven spirits of God. And that's referring to the seven ministries of the Holy Spirit. right? So there in heaven are these seven lamps burning before his throne. And there in the temple was the menorah with seven lights, seven candles or lamps upon it. The sea of glass and before his throne in heaven. Um, In the temple, it was called a brass laver. And I don't remember the exact measurements, but it was this huge bowl. It was like six feet, seven feet, I can't remember exactly, in diameter. And the priests before entering into the holy place, would stop at this huge bowl and, and, and kind of just wash their hands or dip their hands in it. But the purpose of it was, is it was a mirror. And then as they went up to it, it was all polished on the inside. And when they would look in, they'd see themselves. And they'd have to identify, I'm a sinner who needs to be cleansed. And so they'd cleanse their hands, right? But now the sea of glass in heaven is different because it isn't to show sin. It's to show that we're free of it. That as we enter into the throne room, come before His throne with boldness. That sea of glass reflects what He has done in us. That's the only reason we can have boldness before His throne. The four living creatures. These guys are interesting, and I can—I I know I say this a lot, but the four living creatures—or I think there's probably more of them. There's four of them here. I'm looking forward to just talking with these guys. <laughs> who are you? (laughs) They show up several times in the Old Testament. Uh, In Ezekiel chapter 1, also Ezekiel 10. Isaiah chapter 6, when he has his vision of heaven, he describes the cherubim that fly around. Um, And and these guys, these are intense, man. These guys are seriously powerful beings. Um, And they also are depicted throughout the temple. They're on tapestries, and they're on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. The two cherubim wings up and wings forward touching each other. So again, this is all a picture that God gave to Moses and went, Look, it's important that you make everything exactly the way I'm telling you. Why? Because this represents my throne room. And you cannot rep- misrepresent me or, or my throne or what it's about. And so even the, the materials of everything. And it's super boring to go through and read all the stuff as they, you know, the, the bases for the poles and what they were made out of and, and everything in the tapestries and what they would be and how they'd be woven. And you read, if you just read it as like building materials and instructions, it's super boring. But when you understand that it is pointing towards God's throne room, And so much of it is pointing towards Jesus Christ himself. (laughs) That changes the whole thing. And it suddenly becomes very exciting. That there is a reality to the things that we've been shown here. Verse 7 goes on. It says, The first living creature was like a lion, and the second living creature was like a calf. The third living creature had the face of a man And the fourth living creature was a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. And they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever, and cast their crowns before his throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Again, these cherubim, these aren't the cute little baby angels that have been painted in our history. You know, and they talk about, oh, those are the cherubim and these little naked baby angels. and like, I don't think that's what they look like. Somebody didn't read their Bible. And I don't think the cherubim were like, that's not me at all, right? <laughs> I don't look at anything like that. These guys are very tough, full of power and authority. And again, there's so much about it, I don't understand. It talks about that they're full of eyes within and without. Now, the idea is not that they are all-knowing or all-seeing. But the idea is that they have seen a lot. These guys have been with the Lord before we were created, before earth existed. They've seen the fall of Satan and a third of the angels. They've seen the creation of man and the universe. They've seen all of these things. And it has all led to this moment. And as they are there in heaven, crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's the same message they had in Isaiah, right? I think we make a mistake sometimes as we we picture this, or at least I, again, have made this mistake as I picture this in heaven. Because it says that they continue this day and night, right? And so we go, this is what they've been doing throughout all of time? This This is all they've done? They just keep doing the same thing over and over again? And then kind of picture the 24 elders, like, have they been caught in this loop as well? Like, every time they say, then these guys cast their crowns and bow down and I mean, I guess it's cool, but it sounds, again, a little boring, right? Again, that's the wrong idea. While the angels, the, cher- the cherubim, or seraphim, these guys, are, are calling this out, and this is their message, it is at a crossroads of this event that it makes so much importance. Now, I don't know if the 24 elders were brought in 100 years ago, whether they were brought in the morning before John arrived. But the reason they are bowing down, the reason that they're overwhelmed with worship, and that's the idea, that when these angels cry out, holy, 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 these 24 elders are just overwhelmed. It's not that they're like having to go through their script. They just can't do anything else. They're so blown away at the goodness of the Lord. And they know what's coming. They know the events that are about to unfold. And as they do, they're, again, Lord, you alone are worthy. It's powerful. And again, we get the wrong idea. If any way this seems boring or this seems crazy or or incomprehensible to us, understand that this is the intensity of worship taken to a hundred that we might get a little taste of every once in a while here. You know, those times of worship where... You just tune the whole world out. And again, there's something that just clicks in you that you go, there is a throne set in heaven. And man, you set your focus upon the goodness of Jesus and holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And you just are carried away, right? That's that experience we want every time we worship, but we just get a taste of it now and then. These guys are getting the full measure. This is the intensity and the beauty that worship was meant to be. And these 24 elders take off their crowns of victory and they cast them at the Lord's feet and they're going, only you are worthy. You alone are worthy. And again, that's not some just act that they're doing, that they're really saying all that I have. And again, we don't know who these guys are, Some say it's, oh, at least 12 of them are the disciples. Well, we don't know that. But whoever they are, they've been given this place, and they're now saying, I don't deserve anything. Any goodness I have, anything I accomplished, any, any change that I made in the world, it's all from you. It all came from you anyhow. This is your victory. And that's the idea of casting that crown. It isn't just them saying, I'm not worthy. It's saying, Lord, this is your victory. You're the one that should wear every crown. You are above every crown or any good thing. It all has come from Him. And again, I think it's good for us. While there's a lot of different ways, and kind of, I'll try and kind of pull this into some application for us. When we get an idea, again, when we get our mind around this throne room, the throne room, I believe it changes the way we live right now. And again, I think we should be living with an expectation of the Lord's return all the time. And we can look at things and say, yeah, Lord, I know you can come back today. Well, even if he doesn't, it doesn't change. There is a throne set in heaven. And I need to come back to that truth. And I need to come back to this place of like the elders admitting, Lord, I have no good thing that I've ever done. You have won every victory. This is your crown." This is your victory, and we are continually, honestly, in our hearts, giving it back to Him. And while this is such a powerful picture and, and powerful worship service, again, I think it's important we understand it's not just for someday, that we can start, even now, to get it more and more. Because if we just look at it, oh yeah, that'll be great. Once we're there in heaven, yeah, we'll be able to cast off all of these burdens and all the things that That are part of this fallen world, and someday we'll be able to enter into that worship. But no, again, I think it starts with us starting right now today, going, Lord, your throne is set in heaven, and you will keep every promise that you have made. And though we're going to go through storms, we're going to go through trials, and even Jesus talked about that in Matthew 24, going, even though you see these things, he's talking about the times leading up to the tribulation and pestilence and earthquake and, and tribulation and difficulty and persecution. He goes, the end hasn't started yet. That's the warm-up. So we will see difficulty. We will see trial. We're seeing it now. But it does not change. There's a throne set in heaven. And even through the worst of it. man. He is going to accomplish every good thing. And He wants to do so much in our lives and through our lives that we can enter into this worship scene right now and look to Him, again, knowing that He will accomplish every promise He has made. Lord, You alone are worthy. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that your throne is set in heaven, immovable, unshakable, unchanging, and that you give us the right perspective to face this fallen world, to live for you in difficult times. And Lord, we want to see souls saved, lives changed, and people brought into a relationship with you that heaven might expand. God, use us however you want. Give us your focus. Give us your heart. Give us your direction. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.